Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to John 4, where we are continuing our series on worship, which is not a long series, but um, it's a good one. It's a good one. We're looking at some, just kind of the essence. We started out by looking at uh, the Bible and what the Bible says about worshiping God through praise. And we've kind of traced the whole theme of praise all the way through the scriptures, found out when songs became part of uh, the normal part of Jewish worship and how all that came about. We also looked at the history of praise as we started back with the early church and uh, just uh, went into the Catholic church and the dark ages and the reformation and, and all the way up into today. We looked at that uh, from um, just a, a survey of uh, praise through history and the Bible and then through Psalm 145. Last week we started looking at John chapter 4. And John chapter 4 is a very critical text, probably one of the most significant texts in the Bible as far as uh, texts on worship. And what's interesting is, is um, when you look at the passage, uh, Jesus was trying to go a different place. But uh, as we learned, some circumstances drove the conversation to the area of worship. And now we have some great, succinct uh, instruction for us found in the Word of God on how God is to be worshipped. We learned that the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. And they hated each other because of a long, century-long, multiple centuries-long conflict starting in the time of Nehemiah when the Jews returned from captivity and the Samaritans wanted to help, but because they couldn't show their ancestry, were excluded from rebuilding Jerusalem. And this just continued on and continued on and really was at a fever pitch in the first century when Jesus and the apostles were here on earth, just the conflict was severe. Many Jews, as we learned, would not even set foot on Samaritan soil. We learned that uh, they would think it was defiling. And so if they had to go from Judea, which was in the south, to Galilee in the north, they would have to travel through Samaria. And instead of doing that, they would try, travel an extra 20 miles down to Jericho, to the hottest place on earth, go up the, the Jordan River, cross over again, and then go up the mountains to Galilee just so they wouldn't have to set foot that would be 80 miles round trip extra um, through hot desert mountainous dry regions just so they wouldn't defile themselves so that kind of gives you an idea of how severe the hatred was uh, between the Jews and the Samaritans. We learned that the Jews uh, used the title Samaritan as a swear word. And when Jesus confronted the Pharisees in John 8, they said, well, do we not rightly say that he is a Samaritan and has a demon? And that was like the worst thing they could think to call him, a Samaritan possessed by a demon. And that's exactly what they called Jesus. Many of us are familiar with the story in Luke 9. In Luke 9 is uh, the story where James and John uh, asked Jesus if they can command fire to come down out of heaven on people. It doesn't seem like a very good evangelistic approach, but it was the approach that they wanted to take. And uh, many of us are familiar with that story, but do you remember the story and do you remember the village that they were in. Let me remind you, Luke 9, 51 through 54 says this, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. This is speaking of Jesus. And he sent messengers on ahead of him and they went and entered a village of the 
Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down out of heaven and consume them? Now that is pretty extreme, it seems. That, you know, you're traveling along, some people don't receive you, so you want to just see them incinerated by the fires of heaven. Now, where did they get this idea? Well, they got this idea from Elijah, who twice in 2 Kings chapter 1 commands fire to come down out of heaven and consume the enemies of God. And it lets you understand just how pervasive it was. The apostles had probably been raised to hate the Samaritans, and they were not excluded from the prejudice that the Jews had against the Samaritan people. They were angry at them. And the Jews many times rejected Jesus and the disciples never said, Lord, should we command fire to come down out of heaven and consume them? But now that they are in the Samaritan village, because of the, the, the whole history of hatred between the Jews and the Samaritan, they don't receive Christ. Why? Because he's going to Jerusalem. Remember we read last week that the conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews hovered around whether Gerizim was the place people should worship or Jerusalem. And so as soon as the disciples go ahead and they say, hey, you know, can you put us up and get us some food and and let us, um, you know, kick back here on our way through, we're heading to Jerusalem to worship, the Samaritans said, no, no. And it made the disciples very angry. Angry enough to want to practice Elijah's judgment upon them. And all of this is important to understand. It is important to understand this because Jesus in John 9 is going through Samaria. He doesn't travel around. And in John chapter 4, he's going through Samaria. This was something a Jew didn't normally do, pass through Samaria. And Jesus sends his disciples to go get something to eat, which is something Jews didn't do. And Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman, something a Jewish man would never do. And Jesus knew she was an immoral Samaritan woman, just they would absolutely not do. And here Jesus is, he's dialoguing with this woman So if you have your Bible, look at verse 7. We'll just read verse 7 and following to kind of get an idea of the context. Again, they they decided they needed to go from um, Judea in the south towards Galilee in the north. And they're passing through Samaria instead of going around. Verse 7, and there came a woman from of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask for me, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? And then John adds, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? 
You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to him, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Now just stop there for a second. Now, this is such a great text, not just for the worship part, but for the whole thing. But notice what's going on here. And for those of you who weren't here last week, just for catch-up sake, and for those of you who were review, Jesus is thirsty. It's about 6 o'clock at night. They've been traveling all the way through this hot country. He wants a drink. He's thirsting physically, but he's also thirsting to see this woman saved. And everybody knows that if you're going to be saved, what you need to deal with is your sin. You need to understand you're a sinner and that you need a savior. And so Jesus, in his perfect wisdom, decides to bring up and bait this woman a little bit by talking about living water. And in the Old Testament, we learned that that was a reference that God used of himself and the salvation that he gives to his people. So he brings this up and He's talking about eternal life, and the woman says, you know, give it to me. I want it. But Jesus knows that she needs to deal with her sin, and so he just tells her, go call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You didn't lie to me. Now, you, you have had five husbands, and the guy that you're shacking up with now is not your husband. And what happened is, is he exposes the big sin of her life. Just wham! Well, like any normal person who is an unbeliever, when you expose their sin, the first thing they want to do is change the subject. And that's exactly what she does. She decides to make a 180 degree turn in the subject matter from talking about her and her immoral relationship and she picks the biggest conflict she can think of between the Jews and Samaritans, the one that they couldn't seem to um, come to agreement on and she says this in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know, and we worship that what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, we learn from these last few verses some very key principles concerning worship. First, we learn that Jesus says to the woman, An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. So he says, Hey, there's a time, and it's happening now, but 
There's going to be a time in the future, after the destruction of the temple and after Christianity gets underway, that you won't have to come to a place to worship anymore. It won't be Gerizim, it won't be here, it'll be wherever you want. In other words, worship is not a matter of location. It's not a matter of location. And we noted that so often people are so into the place. Now, we often call this building the church. When it's not the church, you are the church. We come here to worship with the church, but we aren't worshiping with the building. We're worshiping with each other. We're worshiping the Lord together corporately. And we know that Jesus is saying here that, listen, place is not the big thing. Place is not the big thing. She wants to know where is the best place to worship. Now, having said that, what I'm not saying is you don't need to practice corporate worship. You know, sometimes you talk to people and say, you know, they, they call me up or whatever. And yeah, you know, I have a problem. And they're talking to me. I say, so where do you go to church at? Well, I worship at home. Oh, really? Well, that's good. We're supposed to be worshiping at home. Uh, where do you go to church at? Well, I, I just do it at home. You don't practice corporate worship? No, no. I you know, sometimes watch TV or listen to a tape and you know, I just kind of do my own thing. Oh, really? Really? What does the Bible say about that? Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10... Look at verse 23. The author of Hebrews is encouraging his readers to hold fast their faith. And he says this in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we know that. As a matter of fact, you know, you... That is like the key verse on, you know, let's go to church. And a lot of people read it and we need to get together and encourage one another and fellowship and, you know, use our spiritual gifts on each other and minister to each other and do corporate things together. And that's kind of the verse. And that's good. That's a good verse for that. The problem is, is people often don't keep reading. The reason they don't is they put a bad paragraph break there. In most Bibles, there's a little, you know, there's another title and it's the start of a new paragraph and um, it's not a good place to have one. See at the beginning of verse 26 where it says for, that means it's a continuation of thought. So whatever was said in verse 25 is now a continuing verse 26. He says in verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drying near for. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Now that is a scary verse. What that means is, is if you don't have a sacrifice for your sins, you're going to hell. That there is nothing to stop it. That there is only a certainty of expected judgment and the fury of God's wrath which will consume his adversaries. Now this is the point you need to understand here. 
Whenever something is mentioned in the Bible, whenever you have a a statement like verse 26 here, which says, for if we go on sinning willfully, you need to ask yourself, well, what kind of sin? Well, you could say any kind of sin. But what you do is you look back into the near context to find what is called the nearest antecedent. To find out what sin is the closest sin mentioned in the context. And what sin is that? In verse 25, forsaking our own assembling together. You can say it this way. For if we go on forsaking the assembling of ourselves together willfully, as is the habit of some, after receiving the knowledge of the truth... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That is a reason to come and practice corporate worship. The Bible says that we must come together to worship corporately. God requires it. Location doesn't matter. You can worship in here. We can go out and stand in the parking lot where it's even hotter and worship. We could, we could worship in the mountains, sounds good to me, on the fly stream. I'll set up our chairs in there and I preach from a rock. It doesn't really matter. Why? Because God is spirit, he is everywhere, and location's not an issue with a God who's everywhere present. That's not the big issue. Corporate worship is a big issue. And that is why John, in 1 John 2.19 says... They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they're all not of us. You know, I have people tell me things like, well, you know, my my daughter, you know, hasn't really been walking with the Lord. And it's, you know, it's been a long time. I think, you know, she hasn't gone to church for six and seven years, but she's a believer. No, no, that's not what that says, does it? They went out from us. So that it may be shown that they're all not of us. For if they would have been the children of God, they would have remained. But they departed to show that they are not of us. We must be ever careful to guard against autopilot worship. We must be ever careful to think that corporate worship is an option and that autopilot worship is acceptable. You know, where you come in, you've got your Bible under your arm, you get your bulletin, you sit in your favorite pew. You know, Edward comes up here, you stand up, sing two songs, sit down. Then they sing a song for you, and then there's an announcement, then there's a prayer, and then you're going through the whole motion. And at the end of the service, you think, okay, I've got some notes. What was the sermon about? What? what? I don't, even, I don't even remember what we sang. You're just totally just going through the motions. You're, you're, I mean, if that's the case, then we might as well get inflatable people and pump them up and put them in the pews. And play a tape. God wants, God wants you to come here and to worship Him from your heart. And it doesn't matter the place. He wants you to assemble with God's people. Why? So you can have accountability from other people. So people can look at your life and see if you're walking with the Lord. So they can, with their spiritual gifts, minister to you, and that you, with your spiritual gifts, can minister to them. That's why you come for corporate worship, so you can praise God together, so you can learn God's word together, so you can be equipped corporately to go out in the world and do battle. 
And God requires it. It's not an option. So be warned of being overly focused on place and form to the neglect of those things that must be, which is corporate worship. You can do it here or Wednesday or Tuesday or Thursday. Doesn't matter. God is every place at all times. You can't get away from him. Secondly, we learn from this text. Jesus tells the Samaritan woman plainly, you don't know the God you think you worship. This is a pretty heavy statement, isn't it? Jesus tells the woman in John 4, listen, you don't know God. You don't know the God you think you worship. This is a blow. Imagine, imagine Worshipping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all of your life, going to Gerizim, sacrificing, to only to discover after dying that you have worshipped an idol all your life. And that this idol is supposedly the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's the, the God that Moses wrote about, that you got your information from the same book and the same man, and he's got the same name, but he's an idol. Why? Because you've redefined him. You haven't worshipped him according to his truth. And many Christians are this way. They come to church, and they know that, you know, they've got, um, they've got some problems with this or problems with that, and so they want to go off and do their own thing. So they go to another church where, you know, we aren't going to practice church discipline. I mean, we aren't going to get out and actually say so-and-so's in sin. Why not? Because we don't want to obey the word of God. Now, they don't tell you that, but that's what they're doing. They've made a commitment in their heart not to worship in truth. Is, is that acceptable to God? No, not at all. And just having the title Christian and just using the same name of Jesus doesn't make you a true worshiper. I mean, look at the Mormons. They use all the same jargon that we do. They talk about Jesus and all. We believe the Bible and all of that stuff. They even have King James. But what happens is, is they teach people to worship an idol, a false god who has the same name as the true god. They redefine him. They twist God's word. And salvation is not from the Jews. It's from Joseph Smith. They distort the truth. Remember last week we talked about the fact that we are of a Jewish heritage. Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were Jew. The Old Testament was written by Jews. The New Testament was written by Jews. With maybe the exception of Luke, who was a Jewish convert, Gentile Jewish convert, we don't know for sure. Christianity is thoroughly Jewish, and we are wild olive branches grafted into the natural rootstock. We are not the natural rootstock. The Jews are. Salvation is from the Jews. And that's what Jesus says. Salvation is from the Jews. It is from the Jewish people that we received the word of God, the Messiah, and salvation from the word of God through the Messiah. Also, we learn from this text that the Father is looking for true worshipers. He's looking for people. God wants to be worshipped. He deserves to be worshipped, and he's looking for him. He's seeking him out. Oh, he wants to be worshipped. 
but he wants to be worshipped in his way. He doesn't want false worshippers to worship him. He wants true worshippers to worship him. The Samaritans, like many people today, because they redefined God, because they rejected portions of God's word, because they built up a competing temple and had their own little kind of um, altered uh, Judaism, they were offering unacceptable worship. Unacceptable worship. And even though they were very zealous and very sincere in their wrong worship, it was still unacceptable. They were false worshipers. And so we learned that the true worshiper is defined by two words. He must worship in spirit and truth. And we learned that spirit meant just with everything you are inside, your emotions, your mind, your, your thoughts. You know, just this morning, I don't know about you, but after studying last week, how many of you this morning, when you were singing a song, caught your mind wandering and thought, oh no, how many of you, kind of raise your hand, admit it. See, see? Yeah, me too. I was doing the same thing. I was singing a song and all of a sudden my mind was wandering. I thought, oh, so I went back and um, yeah, you want to, you want to keep focused on God. And that's what it means. That's what God is looking for. He's looking for us to come and engage our minds, not just to stand there and go, oh, I know this song and just to mouth the words while you're thinking of lunch. He wants you to think of him when you're worshiping. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit. But God is also truth. And we must worship him in truth. And we need to be careful that we come together, that we don't become like the people of Isaiah's time. Isaiah 29, 13, the people draw near with their words and honor me with their lips. But they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Some of you grow up in the church. You've learned to come to church and go through the same routine. And you come and you go through the routine. And after you leave church, you don't even know what you did. You're just, you're just going through the motions. You're just autopilot worshiper. You're like a mechanical machine. That's not what God wants. God doesn't want you to go through the motions. He wants you to worship him. From your heart, from your passions, from your desires, because you want to. Thinking about him, focusing on him, praising him. That's what he wants you to do. And the solution to this is to discipline your mind and your heart and your attention to think about God when you're worshiping. Not just to come and be an autopilot worshiper. But there is a danger in this, isn't there? There's a danger because you can, you can really be passionate and not worship God. You can, you can fall into the trap of being very zealous, caught up in the whole, you know, entertainment of it all, the drama and the entertainment and the music and, and the, the, the beat and the tempo and, and you're swaying back and forth and you feel great and you're just happy and just, oh man, this is great. It's like going to a good concert. It makes me feel good. And I just like it when I feel good. And when I come here and I leave and I'm feeling good, it's just great because I got what I wanted. But God may not have gotten what he wanted. The worship isn't for you and you're feeling good. Worship isn't so you can leave feeling a certain way. Worship is so God would receive what he deserves from you, which is praise and honor, confession and repentance. Humility, 
service. Oftentimes we come, we're so caught up in ourselves, we just commit idolatry. Some of the songs that are out there are nothing more than anthems to self. They all talk about what I'm going to do, what I want to do, and who I am and how I feel. And then you end and you think you worship God when you just worshiped yourself. And some people think that because their emotions and passions are stirred up, that somehow they've worshiped God. You know, I, I came to the building, the, the church, and I got all emotional about it, and I left feeling good, so obviously I worshiped, right? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. You may be sincere. You may be sincerely wanting to worship. But if there is no truth lived out in your life and directing your worship, it is unacceptable. And I would say God hates it. He hates it. In Ezekiel's day, the prophet Ezekiel pronounced judgment upon Israel for this very thing. In Ezekiel 33, verses 31 through 32, this is how God described the false worshipers of Ezekiel's time. They come to you as a people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth and their heart goes after their gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. And that's how some people are. You know, you find out that some people, it's like, yeah, man, I just love the preaching here, man. I like it hard, man. I should be convicted. And then you find out the guy's just in total carnality, just entrenched in sin. He comes as to a music lecture to hear, as a garden to pluck flowers, and oh, this is so wonderful going to church. But listen, if you aren't living out the truth, worship is unacceptable. It's not acceptable. It must be in spirit and truth. Truth, truth must drive and direct and shape and control all of our worship. You know, people come here, you wonder, you know, why is it? And when, when, when we worship here that, um, you know, we kind of here start the service a lot of times with the scripture reading. Then we have a scripture reading in prayer. Then we have a scripture reading before giving a lot of times. And then we read the scripture and I preach on it. You ever wonder why we do that? Now you know. That's why. Because we want the God's truth to drive every portion of our worship. We want to remind you. We want to be reminded of ourselves exactly what God wants. Why? Because God is specific in how he is worshipped. Turn to Leviticus chapter 10. And you're thinking, does any good thing come out of Leviticus? It happens every once in a while. Leviticus chapter 10. This is a great portion because in chapter 9, the, the beginning of the book, and even in the book of Exodus, the book written before this, they receive all the instructions to build the tabernacle. So they build the physical structure. Then they receive all the information on how to do all the sacrifices. And then in chapter 9, they're offering sacrifices like crazy to the Lord. And God's glory descends down on the tabernacle, his Shekinah glory fills it, and then fire comes down out of heaven and literally consumes the sacrifices. 
And he is pleased and the people are very pleased that God has accepted their worship. He's accepted their sacrifices. Oh, happy day. Everything is great. And now we get to chapter 10. Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu are priests to the Lord. And they are in charge of offering incense. We read from Leviticus 16. They were to take fire from the altar and a special kind of incense and offer it to the Lord. Now follow along as I read these first seven verses. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. I mean, what else do you do? Moses called also to Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle, Uziel, and said to them, Come forward, carry your relatives away from the tent of the sanctuary to the outside the camp. So they came forward and carried them still in their tunics to outside the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes, so that you will not die. And that he will not become wrathful against all the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall be well the burning which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting, or you will die, for the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they did according to the word of Moses. Well, no kidding. But think about this. Everything's happy. Everything's hunky. And all of a sudden... These two men decide to offer strange fire. Now, we don't know if they offered the wrong incense or got the fire from another place instead of the altar or they were drunk. I mean, there's a whole bunch of guesses. It doesn't matter. What matters is they didn't obey the word of the Lord. And God is so zealous. He is so passionate for his holiness. He is so concerned about being treated as holy before his people that he breaks out from his Shekinah glory, and just devours these two men in flames. I mean, this must have been so graphic. While everybody, you remember how the tabernacle stood, it was a very confined area. You can't get away. And God is devouring these two men who are supposed to be offering up incense. And then God says, listen, Aaron, your two sons that have just been killed... Don't mourn for them. And Moses' other two sons are there also, right? He's got quite a few sons, and anybody who mourns for him, I'm going to kill him. I will kill you. Why? Because these men treated me as unholy, and I don't want anybody to feel sorry for them. Because my holiness is more important than anybody's life. Anybody's. And he kills them and says, Don't mourn for them. Don't even go outside the tent of meeting or you're going to die. You stay here and do what I told you to do. And remember, obey my word. And you know after that they were careful. 
I mean, how long do you think they went, okay, all right, now what are we supposed to do now? Now let's read one more time. Okay, this is exactly how God, see, what would that do? It would cause you to fear, wouldn't it? It caused you to have great reverence and great concern for what God wants. Do you think they were going right after that happened? Okay, well, let's do something that makes us feel good. Not in your life. Secondly, we learn from this. Not only do we learn from it that when we go before God, we need to treat him as holy. Secondly, we learn from this, this. That if you are a leader in worship, you better be reverent and right before the Lord, obeying his word. I don't care if you're up here praying. I don't care if you're up here singing or preaching or doing whatever. You, if you're up in front of God's people, leading them in any way, you better be doing it according to the word of the Lord. Because in this text, we learn that God was willing to punish the entire congregation for the sins of those who were leading them in unholy worship. And that is a huge responsibility. God wants to be worshipped exactly as his word says. And the same God we worship is the same God of Leviticus chapter 10. Turn to 1 Samuel 15, another example. 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is the story of how God tells Saul, King Saul, to strike the Amalekites and utterly destroy them. So Saul attacked them, defeated them. But look at verse 9 of 1 Samuel 15. But Saul and the people spared Agag, that's the king, and the best of the sheep and oxen and fatlings and lambs and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Well, what a great sacrifice. Then the Lord takes Samuel the prophet and sends Samuel the prophet to rebuke Saul. And Saul, when he sees Samuel the prophet coming, says in verse 13, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have carried out the command of the Lord. Really? This is what you will find in a lot of churches who don't preach the word and don't emphasize God's truth. They don't even know they're sinning. They don't even know they're in rebellion. And when you talk to them, they're like, you know, why are you you're so judgmental? Oh, you're disobeying God's word. Hey, man, you know, we're, we're doing it right. I mean, hey, we can be laid back if we want and laugh and tell jokes. I mean, after all, isn't this, you know, I mean, we're free in Christ. Look at verse 14. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I have here? Saul said, now notice this. This is so pious. They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the auction to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Well, who is the king? Who is commanding the army? Who got the command to utterly destroy anything and take nothing? It was Saul. Do you see what is happening here? They have mostly obeyed the Lord. And to mostly obey the Lord is to completely disobey him. Completely disobey him. Saul rejected the word of the Lord by only partially obeying it. Now look at verses 22 and 23. 
Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Now, stop there for a second. Note this, that God did require the people to sacrifice. They were supposed to sacrifice. They were supposed to do the whole system. He's not saying, pitch the law of Moses. What he's saying is, is, do you think God just wants you to go through the motions while you're in rebellion? Not in your life. You must obey because obedience from the heart is better than just purely sacrificing with a disobedient heart. And then he quoted the verse I quote to my children all the time. For rebellion is the sin of divination. And insubordination is that it's iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. I don't quote him the last part. (laughs) I teach my kids the same thing. Listen, anytime the word of God says do something and you choose to not do it, what you're doing is you're taking God, you're setting him aside, you're elevating yourself as God, you're committing idolatry in your rebellion. That's why he says what he does here. Rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. And it's repeated twice in the New Testament by Paul. Not the same verse, but the same thing. Rebellion is idolatry. Good intentions are not enough. Passion is not enough. Wanting to do what right is right is not enough. Thinking you can improve on God's word is definitely not enough. You must worship in truth. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. In this section of 2 Samuel, David wants to bring the ark to the capital city of Jerusalem from Bel Judah or Kiriath Jearim. And notice that the text says in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 6, Now David, again, gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David rose and went with all the people who were with him to the ark to Bel Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God in a new cart, that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah, in Ohio, the the sons of Abinadab were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ohio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David, now notice this, now don't miss this part here. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and lyres and harps and tambourines and cassonets and cymbals. I mean, right now they are just, they're just having a great time. They were bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Happy day. Praise God in their disobedience. Look at verse 6. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, reached out towards the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. People learned this lesson. Worshiping in spirit, with joy, with passion, with zeal, with good intentions, with an entire orchestra is no substitute for truth. 
You must worship in spirit and according to the truth of God's word. This is how God requires it. If I'm working on my house and I do some excellent craftsmanship on the outside of my house or something, I really make something look nice and the inspector comes and he looks at it and says, oh, this is not up to code. You have to rip it out. I have to rip it out. I don't care how well-intentioned I was. If I don't meet up the code, it comes out. Well, the same thing. It doesn't matter how well-intentioned you are. You got to fit up, fit up to the code here. This is the code of God. God tells us in his word how he wants to be worshipped. We submit to God and he hasn't given us permission to override what he said or to treat him as if he was unable to instruct us in the way in which we, he would have us worship him. God has a worship code and we must submit to it or our worship is unacceptable. Turn to Acts 5. Acts 5. Just to let you know he's the same God in the New Testament. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Church is brand new. Everything's great. All these people have stuck around to learn from the apostles, these new converts. People are having needs. People are selling their property and giving and sharing to try and take care of these people who are staying behind in Jerusalem for longer, which they weren't prepared to do because they only came there for the week of the pilgrim feast, the Pentecost. Verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself. With his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? And while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down, breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up and covered him after carrying him out, and they buried him. Now, there elapsed, several, uh, elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter responded to her, tell me, whether you sold the land for such and such a price, And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. This is about worshiping God and giving, isn't it? God didn't say, go sell your property. This was something they were going to do. They sold their property. They decided to keep some back. But in order to gain the favor of men to look good in the sight of other peoples, they didn't give anonymously. What they did is they came and said, oh, yes, well, uh, here's the money for our whole property. We're giving it all to the church. Praise us a little. And so in deceit, they gave. And God struck them dead. They even planned to deceive. And God struck them dead. Now think about this. They, they did give, which was great. It was probably quite a bit of money, which was great. You know, real generous, which is good. They gave it and quote, the name of the Lord. Good for a good cause. Great. 
But because they had deceit in their their heart, because they had covetousness, because they lied, it was all unacceptable. Now don't miss this. God wants us to worship in truth. Just like he said, whether it's in giving, singing, listening to God's word. I've given you examples of needing to hear and obey, of worshiping God in incense. You know, don't put the right kind in there. In the Jewish system, you were in trouble with God. And when you think of all these stories, you think, well, you know, Jack, do you try and tell us these stories to scare us? I hope so. I hope this scares you. I hope this I hope this helps you understand how severe our God is for his holiness, his his desire to be honored by each and every one of us. So when we come here, we aren't flippant and coarse and irreverent, but we are humble and fearful and what we realize that every one of us deserves what Uzzah got what Nadab and Abihu received, what Ananias and Sapphira received. All of us deserve that because all of us have not worshipped God in a way that he deserves. And these people were struck down and killed so that you can learn the lesson that they didn't learn. God killed them for your good and his glory. Do you remember what Psalm 145:18 says? The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. God is looking for those who worship him. He's seeking them out. He wants them to worship him with a whole heart, with all their minds engaged and focused on him according to his word exactly. And I hope that it's your commitment as you leave here today to be that kind of worshiper because we must worship him that way. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And Father, we are amazed at what the scriptures show us just about your zeal to defend your holiness, to be treated as holy before the people, to be honored before the people as a God who is to be submitted to and obeyed, a God who is to be worshipped in spirit and truth. And Father, I pray for Calvary Bible Church that each one of us in our everyday worship day to day as we pray, as we go to work, as we live our lives as a perpetual living sacrifice and as we gather together for corporate worship, that Father, we would want to worship you from our whole heart according to complete obedience to your word and everything. Because we know... That is the only kind of worship that is acceptable. And to do anything else does not bring you glory. Father, may we remember our responsibility. May we trust in your grace to do it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.